Today's program was recorded prior to President Biden's State of the Union address. For coverage on the State of the Union, check out flatlining.net or this week's edition of the Friday Pulse Check. everyone, welcome to the Flatlining Podcast from Fulcrum Strategies. The podcast brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Hamley from Flatlining.net. With me, as he has been, is the President and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies and Economist, Ron Howergan. Ron, how are you? I am good, sir. I hope you as well. I am doing well, and I know we have some um, a good update to bring uh, some of our listeners today based off of the No Surprises Act and some of the lawsuits brought by the Texas Medical Association. We're going to be devoting our entire program to that uh, today. So, Ron, I guess the first thing is, is this there was a ruling on uh, one of the Texas Medical Association uh, lawsuits this week. Um, but let's back up a little bit and talk about where this got started with the Texas, Texas Medical Association last year. Yeah, so where this all started was um, after the No Surprises Act was passed and signed into law, Health and Human Services was uh, the designated agency to um, promulgate any rules to help flush out the law. And this happens with any law. You know, there are, there are gray areas or there are gaps. And so um, one of the administrative agencies, whoever is responsible for it, will publish rules to help explain the law. So uh, Health and Human Services published um, uh, what they called their interim final rule. Um, that explained how the uh, dispute resolution, the IDR, was supposed to work, and it set about sort of explaining how the law was going to work. Unfortunately for them, um, it didn't explain the law. It really changed the law. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they clearly were trying to bend the law in the way they wanted it to work. Um, So they promulgated these rules, and the Texas Medical Association, with the support of almost every other professional association in in medicine, the AMA, the American College of Radiology, the um, American College of Emergency Physicians, et cetera, Mm -hmm. ASA, et cetera, um, the Texas Medical Association found two um, injured parties, um, and they filed a lawsuit in federal court, in district court, um, challenging that interim final rule. And the judge in the case, Judge Cronodal, issued a summary judgment and basically ruled in favor of the plaintiffs and told the federal government that what they tried to do, they can't do. Um, He basically ruled on two things, which were one was that they overstepped their bounds, that a, a regulatory entity doesn't have the ability to change a law or make new law. Um, and that even if they had, they didn't follow the right process. There was no sort of open comment period. There was no time for people to say, we don't like that, et cetera. And he struck down um, the vast majority of that interim final rule and said, hey, try again. Um, otherwise, we go back to the way the original law was written. So that was what is now called TMA-1 or Texas mm-hmm. Medical Association 1. And the reason why it's now called TMA-1 is since that ruling, 
There have now been three more. So we've got TMA2, TMA3, and TMA4. Right. And TMA2 is the one that the judge just ruled on um, on Monday of this week. So in, at issue in TMA1 uh, was both the, the fact the rule, the, the way the rule was composed, but also I understand um, some aspects about the QPA. Yeah, in essence, the way that the No Surprises Act was set up is that if there is a dispute of payment between the payer and the provider, that there's supposed to be this independent dispute resolution process. Um, and independent meaning the sort of the key word there. Um, and that in this process, both sides would in essence present information on why they think their number is correct. Part of that is what's called the QPA or qualifying payment amount um, as one piece of information. And then these entities that have been um, contracted by the federal government to make these decisions as arbiters will make the decision on who's right and who's wrong. Um, and these entities, it's what's called baseball-style arbitration, which means you can't pick in the middle. There's a winner and a loser. Mm -hmm. And so they will take a bunch of information that the law outlines, the types of information that can be used, um, and they'll decide who wins, who loses. Well, what happened in the interim final rule is... Health and Human Services, CMS, tried to say, no, what you should do, Arbiter, is the QPA is right unless the other side presents you with really compelling evidence that it's wrong. So it's sort of like, you know, in this country, we're used to innocent until proven guilty. Well, this was sort of like you're guilty until proven innocent. Right. Um, and then it also set about some requirements for what information can and sh and should be reviewed by the RDR. So, and and it was in the judge's own sort of language in the first ruling, he basically said, you're trying to tip the thumb on the scale in mm -hmm. favor of the insured. Yep. Um, and that's what he threw out. So that was part, that was all TMA1 was revolving around this change to the law itself. And I, I think we ought to be clear too that this doesn't have to do with the um, per perhaps more public part of the No Surprises Act, which is uh, whether or not patients get bills from out-of-network providers at in-network facilities. That part's still around. We're talking about the, the dispute resolution process that HHS is supposed to facilitate. Uh, Judge Kernodal, uh, as you as you noted, he's a Trump appointee, and before anyone tweets me and say he's a sycophant, he, uh, he, he ruled against several election lawsuit claims regarding the Trump administration when he was claiming that he had still won. Um, so he's he's shown some partiality there, which I appreciate. And, and I think he has again here in these Texas Medical Association cases. So the QPA, or excuse me, not the QPA, the interim final rule uh, that was at the heart of the challenge of TMA1 was thrown out and HHS came up with a new one. What did the second final rule look like? So uh, HHS came out with now what they called their final rule. And they said, okay, we, we went back to the drawing board here. We, uh, we replaced all the provisions you didn't like, and here's the new final rule. Let's, let's move forward. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the Texas Medical Association said, I'm sorry, but that's really the same thing as you tried to get done the first time. So they sued again, mm -hmm. um, basically under the exact same arguments that they're trying to tip the scales. Um, they didn't follow the right process and that they're doing a whole lot more than what they can do under the law because as the plaintiffs in this case, Texas Medical Association said, was the law is not ambiguous. It very detailedly lays out mm -hmm. what you're supposed to do here and they're trying to do it again. 
And so they got before the same judge. And yesterday, the same judge made the exact same ruling and basically said, you're right. You, you know, I don't care how many times you send this to me. It's wrong. Um, and I'm going to rule again. It's, it's interesting. He even sort of talked about the fact that they were trying to do it again um, and not doing a very good job of sort of hiding what they were trying to do. Mm hmm. Now, I, I guess one question comes to be is that if it's so um, unambiguous in the actual act itself, why does there need to be a final rule from the Department of Health and Human Services about how disputes are supposed to be done? Well, and I think this really gets to the crux of what's going on here. And it was, you know, in sort of, um, uh, you know, what the, the judge's ruling were. What is pretty clear to me is that Health and Human Services doesn't like the way the law was written, and they really want it to be the way they want it to be, and they're trying to change it. Um, and the judge is, was very clear to, to sort of say, you can't do that. At one point in his ruling, he said, it is a core administrative law principle that an agency may not rewrite clear statutory terms to suit its own sense of how the statute should operate. Mm -hmm. And I think that's exactly what HHS is trying. They've got an idea on how it should operate, but that's not how it was written. That's not how it was passed by Congress. And right. that's what the judge keeps telling them is, you don't have to like it. You just have to implement it. Mm -hmm. Congress writes laws, you implement them. Um, and he went to great lengths to explain to them that, you know, that there's no ambigu ambiguity here. Um, at one point, the department HHS argued that the final rule simply, and this was their words, fills a gap in the statute concerning how to evaluate the various pieces of information that go into selecting payment amounts. That was their argument. Mm -hmm. The judge's response was pretty short and sweet and said, but there is no gap. <laughs> um, and so um, to answer your question, there really shouldn't be a final rule about this. It's very clear. Mm -hmm. Are there other parts of the law that needed to be explained a little bit or fleshed out? Absolutely. Um, and those parts that are pretty obvious he didn't throw out. He just threw out all of this stuff because, right. as he pointed out a second time, this is an agency trying to rewrite or change law that was, you know, appropriately written and signed by the Congress and signed by the president. Mm -hmm. and, and the so the part that they're they're disputing about is the dispute resolution process. Why does uh, HHS want? Why would you say that HHS wants to? force the hand of some of these arbiters to rule in favor of the insurance companies. I know that they, I know the, the ruling said something about predictability, but I, I'm, I'm curious in general why HHS has taken such a strong stance on this particular aspect of the No Surprises Act. Um, well, and they, and they actually got fairly obvious about it. They want to use the No Surprises Act to lower the reimbursement for hospital-based physicians and lower healthcare costs. Mm -hmm. um, and they keep trying to do that. Well, that's not what the law was meant to do. No, The law was meant to protect patients from surprise bills, which everybody agrees should happen. Mm -hmm. um, using it to artificially lower reimbursement was not what Congress did. Um, and so they keep trying to get at that goal of using it the way they want it to, which is lower reimbursement rates. Um, and the judge keeps throwing that out. Um, and, and they, you know, this time they sort of called it more predictability, but it's the same mm -hmm. thing. 
um, they're looking at it for a way to sort of force a reduction in reimbursement rates. Does that work overall? I mean, obviously, it would, it would work in, in lowering reimbursement rates, but does that lower the cost of health care for consumers? If, if, you know, for all these people that are on commercial insurance, if somehow Congress managed to cut their reimbursement rate by, say, 10 or 20 percent, is that actually going to make it down to the premiums and the deductibles that most people see? Well, there's a couple of problems with it. Um, you know, one problem is what you just pointed out. You know, okay, let's say that they were successful in doing this and they lowered reimbursement rates. Um, when am I going to get my insurance rate reduction or my rebate? Well, don't hold your breath, gentlemen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the insurance companies are pretty good at making profit, and I don't think they're going to let this float down anyway. But even if they did, um, it brings in a problem, and I know we've discussed this before on previous episodes, and and it's one of the few times I sort of get to you know show off my limited <laughs> um, chops in speaking Latin. Um, it's the economic problem of ceteris paribus, mm-hmm. which is this problem of trying to study an economic or a uh, marketplace and holding all other things equal and only messing with one variable, and it never works because other variables are in play here. So. You know, it's it's not illogical to think that if we're going to lower reimbursement rates for radiologists, anesthesiologists, ER docs, et cetera, that something else is likely to happen in all likelihood. And there's there's history for this. There's precedent for this. What it will do is force those doctors to become employees of the hospitals they serve, which in all likelihood, if history repeats itself with where we've seen this happen in the past, will actually increase costs. Mm-hmm. And where we've seen this in the past is years ago, Medicare changed their reimbursement for how cardiologists get reimbursed for some of the imaging that they do. Now, as you can imagine, cardiologists are heavily dependent on Medicare, given their specialty in the population they served. And so Medicare changed reimbursement and cardiologists all faced a rather significant cut in reimbursement. Mm -hmm. Well, what happened? Over time, what happened is cardiologists sold themselves to hospitals. I think the last numbers I saw is something like 75% of all practicing cardiologists are now employed by the hospital. Okay, and then the second thing that happened was, and there's a lot of studies and examples of this, costs went up. For example, you know, there's a, there was, I remember there was one article I read about a cardiologist who uh, the patient was talking about the, you know, the previous tress, stress test they did on a treadmill. Cost them a couple hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. And then the next one they did while the cardiologist was owned by the hospital and that stress test happened in the exact same office that it happened before was now $2,000 because now it was hospital mm-hmm. billing and a, and a facility charge. Right. So, um, no, you know, if they were successful in doing this, I don't think we would see premiums go way down. And even if they did for a temporary period of time, the doctors would adjust. They'd sell to the hospital and things would act, costs would actually go up. Mm-hmm. Staying with the payers, do we know if in the dispute resolution processes that they are following what when they submit, you know, their argument for why the the QPA should be considered as the the main amount? Do we know if they're following the judge's directives on that? Um, We have some anecdotal information. I have some anecdotal information for some of my clients, and I've talked to others who have anecdotal information that answers the question is, no, not always. Mm-hmm. That there are, seems to be significant numbers of times where um, a case has gone through dispute resolution. The arbiter has ruled in favor of the provider, which means money is owed to them, and the provider is yet to receive that money. 
Um, I don't know if the payers are having a difficult time administering these rulings mm -hmm. or they're just choosing not to. But at the end of the day, um, it doesn't appear like this law. And there's a number of parts of the law that aren't being fully enforced well, um, but it doesn't appear that that's happening. Well, and that kind of goes to another thing we discussed previously is HHS's track record in actually enforcing some of the, the laws that Congress has passed for them to, you know, hospital transparency pricing, stuff like that, that they haven't really yeah. gotten a grip on. So with that, then, if, if you're a provider and you've, you've, wanted, you've won one of these IDR processes and the payer owes you money and they haven't paid you, does that fall under... Um, some of those underpayment clauses that are in your in your contract where you may be entitled to some interest on that claim or because it went through IDR it doesn't count through that well first of all remember if it goes through IDR it means you don't have a contract that's right yep so mm -hmm. there isn't a contract in place um, it doesn't fall under state provisions of prompt pay laws that require interest because again there's no there's no contract in place and then the difficulty is like as we've discussed before is you know getting somebody to enforce that judge's ruling, if you will. Um, I, I know of one client that I have that has had several rulings go in their favor that hasn't been paid within the 30 days as required by law. And so they you know, asked CMS, how do we get this enforced? And CMS said, well, it should be your local state department of insurance. And so they contacted their state department of insurance and said, how do I get this enforced? And the state department of insurance said, that's a federal law, don't ask me, go ask CMS. Hmm. Um, so we've got this now, both sides pointing at the other, and in the meantime, there are physicians who have provided a service and who have, right. you know, um, provided that care who still aren't getting paid what they're owed. So perhaps this needs to be this. Maybe this will end up being a bipartisan issue on uh, in this Congress about trying to to resolve a glitch like that. Or, you know, something that clarifies who's responsible for enforcing it. Um, that, that remains to be seen, depending on what gets done or doesn't get done in Congress over the next few years. So this ruling, let's talk about why it, why it matters. We'll, we can talk about TMA 3 and 4 here in a second, which are the other cases that are still pending. But why does this specific ruling uh, in TMA 2 uh, matter for physicians and hospitals? Well, it matters because, once again, um, HHS and CMS tried to do an end around. And the judge very clearly um, put that put a stop to that. Um, he basically gave the plaintiffs everything they wanted in a summary judgment, and used some pretty direct language um, to say that you know none of the arguments from the defendants are are valid, um, and that they're clearly stepping outside. So hopefully, hopefully the departments will get the message and stop trying to do this stuff. So mm -hmm. that's that's win number one. Okay. Um, and that it will truly be an independent dispute resolution process as outlined in the law. Mm -hmm. um, secondly, hopefully it sets up for TMA 3 and TMA 4, which are in front of the same judge, a judge who is now intimately aware with this law, aware of this law and how it's being used and how it's being abused. And so that that judge can rule fairly and appropriately in those two lawsuits. And and I, you know, I like what you said about in the beginning, you know, this is a Trump appointee. This is a, a law that was passed and signed by President Trump. But I think part of what it shows, and this gives me um, a, a great feeling of hope, if you will, that the vast majority, and I'm sure there are bad apples like in any profession, but the vast majority of federal judges truly rule based on what the law says 
not based on what their politics are. And in this case, clearly the law says something and the judge is ruling in that favor. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's talk about TMA3 and, and TMA4 here in a second. What 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 is the Texas Medical Association um, taking to court in TMA3? So there's a number of things in TMA3 around shortcomings in the way the law is being enforced, if you will. The biggest mm-hmm. of which is this idea of the QPA. The QPA is supposed to be the median contracted rate for a, for a service for a marketplace. Um, it's supposed to be transparent. People are supposed to know what it is. Um, it's supposed to be calculated a certain way, et cetera. And basically what Texas Medical Association is saying is that clearly is not happening. And the fact that it's not happening is one problem. The fact that the regulator in this case, which should be Health and Human Services or CMS, is absolutely not enforcing the law correctly is another problem. Mm -hmm. And so they're asking the judge to either force um, HHS to enforce the law as written or to get rid of the law. You know, if you're if you're not going to enforce it, then um, then get rid of it. Um, and we know that the QPAs aren't accurate. And I'll give you one perfect example. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm aware of specific situations where the exact same service provided by the exact same physician in the exact same hospital by the exact same payer, okay, mm-hmm. has multiple different QPAs, and that can't hmm. happen mathematically. Yeah, there is only it's one median, median contracted yeah. rate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's like saying, you know, the average of something is 25, except when it's 30. No, right. you know, that's, that's two and two never equals seven. Right. Okay. So um, a lot of what TMA3 about is to the judge to say, we have a law here that is not being implemented correctly by the payers and it's not being enforced by um, CMS and that's doing damage to the, to the uh, plaintiffs here. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, Ruling we hope to get very quickly. I've, I've heard even by the end of February, which would be great. Mm-hmm. Um, TMA4 is about uh, sort of an arbitrary and capricious increase to the admin cost um, that CMS mm. just announced mm-hmm. on December 23rd without due process and you know, sort of in, in the eyes of many very incorrectly. Yeah, and I know from my own experience of trying to access what I, I know United Healthcare put out regarding QPA data. I mean, it was terabytes of data that was not usable in any way. In addition, I've spoken to some of the representatives at the payers and have asked for the QPA, and they've said, "Well, we don't we don't have to give you that information." And well, no, the the No Surprises Act says you do, and they they haven't been able to do that. Um, in that case, it was for anesthesia. So there's uh, another question, I believe, if I recall correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, that there was uh, the Texas Medical Association was calling into question even the legality of the the qualified payment amount simply because there's they were talking about ghost contracts and um, or phantom contracts, I think is what you call them. And um, the fact that it's not verifiable because it's not transparent like it's supposed to be. Yeah, it's it's um, and without getting into some of the and I'm not an attorney, but getting some of the sort of the, the legal justifications mm-hmm. or whatever. But it's, you know, in some ways it's similar to the when the challenge happened for the Affordable Care Act about the individual mandate and mm-hmm. whether it was legal or not. Um, there's a number of concerns about the QPA, especially the way it's used, how it's being calculated, the fact that it's not transparent. Um, 
and the fact that what we've got is a regulator that's not doing anything to try to enforce that um, that law. Um, you know, in some ways, it'd be similar to me saying, "Look, I'm just going to mail the IRS a check." Now, I'm not going to tell you how I calculated my tax burden, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to share with you any of that stuff. And and if you ask me, the check might get different the next time I send it in. Just trust me, okay? Right. Um, you you can't have the fox guard the hen house, so to speak. And that's exactly what's happened with the QPA, and that's why Texas Medical Association is is suing over that. Mm-hmm. So you think then, um, because these first two cases have been successful, that we might the physicians TMA might be successful in TMA three and four? Um, if I were a betting man and I were in Vegas, I'd lay a lot of money on that. Um, you know, we may not win every single aspect of TMA three, but in the end, I think we'll win the vast majority of it because, to me, the the violations of the QPA and the lack of any desire from CMS to actually enforce the darn thing are so blatant that it's going to be an easy ruling. And what we've got here is a judge who clearly understands the law um, and just wants the law to be administered the way it was written. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really all that anybody wants. So, yeah, I, if I were a betting man, I'd, I'd, I'd give long odds and I'll take uh, I'll take the providers on TMA3 and TMA4 any day. Mm-hmm. Well, I just uh, clicked around. I'm on the CMS website, and I haven't checked HHS's website, but uh, to check and see if they had any press releases or anything on on this particular ruling of the No Surprises Act. And um, uh, at least on CMS, the earliest thing they have is from uh, February 1. So uh, unfortunately, nothing new there on that. But if we see it, we'll put it in the the show notes for the program. Ron, as always, thank you very much for coming on the Flatlining Podcast and departing some of your wisdom upon us as we talk about the No Surprises Act. No problem. Thank you for having me. For more on the No Surprises Act, you can check out our summary at flatlining.net. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Fulcrum Strategies and flatlining.net. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. You can subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on your favorite podcasting platform, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow me and Ron on Twitter. You can also uh, download the free Substack app to join our chat, and then you can talk to other people who listen to and read Flatlining. For Ron Howergan, I'm Matthew Handley. Have a good week.